welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good to see all of our YBR scholarship participants, even those going to USC. Yes, that's all right. Amen to you. And uh, Ben is right. The USC will probably be owning my Bruins for the next decade. They have a juggernaut of a football team. So, But with God, anything is possible. So I'm, I'm praying for the impossible, that we'd be competitive at least and have some fun with it. Now, as we are digging back into Ephesians, we are wrapping up the series today and next week, um, and then one more after that. And so I'm going to invite you to have your Bibles open to the book of Ephesians if you're using the Pew Bible. If you have a Bible at home, if you're watching from home, we're in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, page 979 in our Pew Bible, 978. I'll jump back to chapter 5 a little bit too. And I want to throw this out there that some of you might say, well, how is this going to apply to me, Pastor Tim? I'd, you know, slaves and masters, bond servants, this has nothing to do with me. I, I, I promise you, there's a word in here for you, so pay attention, uh, but also be praying uh, in the Spirit. Say, Spirit, teach me something. Uh, convict me of something. I, I can't do it, but the Spirit can bring you something today. Maybe it's already happened in worship. Uh, the Spirit is doing something. Amen. And we pray something even more would happen. So have your Bibles open, Ephesians 5 and 6. I want to let you know that even to hear the word slavery in our Bible in 2022, it's, it's shocking, isn't it? It's, it's, and I want to caution us that we would not fully compare slavery that Paul the Apostle is talking about to households in the Roman Empire to our own American knowledge and experience of slavery. It, as terrible as it was back in the Roman Empire, it is different. So I want to make sure we know that. And so I caution us, uh, the things that we're so familiar with, to don't overlay it as exactly the same. It is not. I'm going to share some of the differences in a minute. Now, hear this, slavery in all its form is, is terrible. It's atrocious, it isn't, it's ungodly, it's not how it should be. Um, and Christians should work towards eradicating modern day slavery. And we're gonna discuss this at the end of the sermon. So stay tuned, okay? Now listen to this. Back then, 2,000 years ago, estimates are that in the Roman Empire, up to 60 million people were slaves. They had some kind of contract with a, a master to do work for them. I'm going to explain what that looked like. Now, up to 30% of the entire population of the city of Ephesus, to whom Paul is writing, were slaves. So we're talking about a whole class of an economic force that was legal and considered ethical of that time. Now, keep this in mind as well. Slavery that Paul is writing to it was not based on race. You could have a master who was one race and the slaves were the same race. You could have dark-skinned people have light-skinned race. You could have light-skinned people have dark-skinned uh, bond servants. And so it wasn't a race-based people enslaved other people all the time. That's who Paul is writing to. Now, some slaves, especially those in the household, that means in a house, uh, uh, under, underneath some kind of, in, uh, some household, a property, uh, a compound of, of families living there. There were lots of workers as well, including slaves. And you could expect in a household, like Paul is addressing, that a slave could reasonably expect to be emancipated by age 30, uh, that they could also own property. They could become wealthy. So wealthy that free persons would actually become slaves of these other slaves in order to raise themselves economically. Slaves were doctors, 
teachers. They were administrators. They were the working and professional class alongside free persons. Not all slaves, but just realize some slaves did have this ability. And at times, like I mentioned, free persons would sell themselves into slavery, into a bond servant role as a means of economic advancement. Because being a free person within the Roman Empire could also mean you're extremely poor. And so it might be economically better to develop this contract with a master to provide food and clothing, etc. And then there would be a set price for them to buy their freedom if they paid it back. Okay. In Greco-Roman society, keep in mind as well, 2,000 years ago, submission under the male head of the household was assumed. Now, if you're joining us for the first time or listening for the first time, you're catching us in a wonderful part of Ephesians. Two weeks ago, it was wives, submit to husbands. And then last week, it was children, obey your parents. And today, it's slaves, obey your masters. So this is a lot of fun for me. Uh, But keep in mind that in Greco-Roman society, male dominance was assumed. And in fact, even within the Jewish culture, every morning a Jewish male might pray something like this. Thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a non-Jew, a slave, or a woman. Men, if you're taking notes, don't say that prayer, okay? Do not say that prayer this week. But that is what a good Jewish male might do 2,000 years ago. Thank you, God. I am neither a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. The husband was the ruler of women, of children, and of bondservants. It was assumed it was considered ethical at the time. Now, Paul, while not pressing to overly eradicate the culturally accepted practice of bondservants, hear this, I think he radically redefines the relationship between a household slave and a master. Just see does something radical that I'm going to attempt to point out. And so I want to mention this for those of you, if you, whether you're going away to college or whether you are uh, living here and in your retirement age, people will ask you who don't know Jesus, they'll ask you, how can you follow that Bible when it oppresses people? Have you ever had that question asked to you? If you haven't, that means you don't hang around non-Christians. And that's a problem. Because you need to hang around non-Christians that they're going to know Christ. And you will hear from most of the people in our world and life, how can you follow this book that oppresses people? And so listen up. You need to have an answer. So take notes. (laughs) I'm going to give you at least a way to approach the Bible, to treat it within its context and to treat it faithfully as even I think Paul intended to give you some resources and tools to answer at least that one question and approach, okay? So four points today. The first one is this. I'm going to give you the context of Ephesus. Secondly, I'm going to point a radical reordering in Christ. Thirdly, a vision to see Christ. And fourthly, an opportunity for us to combat modern-day slavery, okay? That's what I'm going to attempt to do with the time that we have together. I love this. I just realized this clock is frozen. And so like, I can preach as long as I want. So this is awesome. I wear glasses. I can't even see that clock. I don't even know what it says. So I'm just going to go as long as I feel like today. Fantastic. Good. Abby will just start waving at me like, good, stop, stop. Okay. First of all, the context of emphasis. And I want to give you this context because anytime you hit any passage of the Bible, you should know its context, period. No matter if it's a troubling question or not, you should know the context. I'm going to give you some context that you can find online or email me. I'll show you all my resources, whatever it be. Know the context of Scripture. Don't, 
Yes, memorize scripture, but even better to know the context of the scripture you're memorizing. Okay, so isn't the Bible a tool of oppression? Well, I hope this context will help. When read rightly, even the section that we are reading today, bond servants, obey your masters, it's actually a liberating word to all who will hear it. I think how it was supposed to have been heard. So 2,000 years ago, Paul is radically redefining the master-slave relationship to model Christ's servant love. This would have been unheard of within the Roman Empire, unheard of within the Jewish context. Paul spends, just to remind you, the first half of Ephesians, six chapters, so chapters one, two, and three, he is highlighting and extolling the majesty of God and celebrating our inheritance as God's sons that we are chosen, we are adopted, we are sealed, we are saved, we are sent. He gives us an immense picture of the glory of God and our invitation into God's goodness. And so the natural response is chapters four, five, and six is, well then how should we live in response to that great treasure we have in Christ? And Paul spends all chapters emphasizing how Christians are called to live in response to God's goodness, how our natural response to God's grace in Christ, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, is us dispensing grace to one another because of Christ. That Jesus is here today for us to pause And I'm praying that you will hear a word of truth, that you are loved, and then if you surrender your life to him, you can find your life. And so I pause here before we dig into this difficult text to just ask you a question. Do you need a fresh experience of God's grace? Because I don't want to assume anything. We were actually interviewing new member candidates called Covenant Partners at our church, and this man shared a wonderful story of how he gave his said a prayer to receive Christ as a, as a young person, but he actually didn't really mean it. He was doing it for someone else. You could be sitting here and saying, well, I, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said a prayer. But I just want to pause and say, do you know the grace of God that is found by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ? Because it's not by works. It's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It's not, it's not by being a good person. It's not by trying to live a good life. It's not by going to church. It's simply surrendering and saying, Jesus, on my own, when I die and see you face to face, there'd be nothing in me that could have earned this. It has to be received as a gift. And so would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray for all of us to receive a fresh word of your grace. But for some of us who have never really received it, it confessed our sins and said, Jesus, come in and take charge. You are my Lord. You are my King. Lord, that that would even happen even now or even as we progress through this message, that people be surrendering their hearts and minds to you and you alone. Oh, Lord, give us the confidence that when we see you face to face at the end of our life, that we would know because of your spirit in us, because of your grace, that we would be welcomed home, not by our works, but because of your work in Christ. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. So pay attention, hear me as we share this word, because Jesus is here today, and I'm praying that you would experience a fresh experience of grace. Even you Christians, you get to experience God's grace anew, not saving grace, this ongoing presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in your life. That's 
our prayer. See, what Paul is doing, he's continuing in chapter 6, what he began in chapter 5. Take a look with me in chapter 5 on verse 18, where Paul says this. He says, do not get drunk with wine, Christians, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Children of God, since you're so loved and you're secure with Jesus, stop filling yourself and being under the influence of things that could never fill you. Make sense? Paul's saying, stop. What? He's even, he's kind of saying, why settle for the weak stuff? You got the Holy Spirit. Why settle for the imposter? Do not get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Be under the influence, literally, not of the culture, but of the Spirit. Stop filling your soul with things that can't fill you. God has shaped in you a void that only he can fill. In you is a beautiful person that cannot live up to its full potential and find purpose and meaning without you making space for that which you were made, Jesus. Stop filling yourself with other things. Stop filling yourself with possessions or power or praise of people. Stop stuffing food and drink into you. It doesn't fit in you. It's not going to feed your soul. It's only going to make your waist expand. Stop stuffing yourself with things that can't ultimately satisfy. Stop stuffing your soul thinking, if I just have one more follower. Stop stuffing your soul thinking, if I could just get that person to apologize, then I know I could really experience God's grace. Oh, no. May God give you a renewed sense of his grace that's already readily available to you. Do not get filled with these other things that you think are going to make you happy. If I just get into that school, finally, it would be validating. Oh, no. Do not attach your value to any degree, any diploma, anything else, except that your names, as Jesus says, are written in heaven, that you know Jesus. Don't be filled by anything else. And then Paul then states an outcome of being filled in verse 18 by the Spirit in verse 21. Take a look there with me. Being filled with the Spirit leads to submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a banner over this whole section when he talks about wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and, uh, and masters. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Greek word for submitting is hupostasso. It's standing under. It is getting lower. I want to ask you a simple question. Would you be known as a Christian for standing under? Is your reputation around your workplace, in your family, in the community of standing under? What does that mean? Humility. You might say, oh, Pastor Tim, I'm like the most humble person I know. Well, that's probably a sign that you need to work on the humble thing, right? Are you known for hupostasso, standing under, for, for, for lowering yourself, for being hum- choosing humility? But secondly, I want to remind you, humility is less about you throwing yourself down and under and disparaging yourself. It's not. It's more about lifting people up. Humility actually has very little to do with putting yourself down. It's really all about, in Christ, lifting others up. 
Are you known for that kind of humility of lifting others up? That's the whole reason as we get into chapter six. Being filled with the spirit, not with other fake stuff that's not going to fulfill you. Standing under one another, submitting to one another, hypostasoing. It's lifting others up. Yes, as you bend low. That's the context. Secondly, a radical reordering. Take a look in chapter 6, verse 5 again. Bondservants, obey your early, earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service. I love that little phrase. Not just for people to see what you're doing, eye service, as people pleasers, oh no, but as bondservants of who? Christ, not even your masters, of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You mean it. It's really, I'm doing the service for the Lord, not even for the master, not just for people to see and praise me or think I'm doing a good job. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. He emphasizes there again, verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Man, so much in here. The word for slave in the Greek is doulos, and it's translated in our text as bondservants. I actually kind of like that translation because it just reminds you again that the slavery of 2,000 years ago was a different situation than the slave that we know, the terrible slavery that happened in North America and in Great Britain, throughout Africa, and in Arabia as well. Everyone was in on the slave thing back then, by the way. Okay. It's different. It's bond servants. It's different. Still terrible in some circumstances, but different. This letter to the Ephesian Christians encourages bond servants within these Christian households to see themselves as bond servants, not of their masters, but of Christ, who work for the Lord rather than their human masters, which is interesting. I think Paul's actually, he's actually kind of shooting over the bow of the masters as well saying, don't forget who their true master is. If you say you're a Christian, you're going to keep this all in mind. Follow with me. I'm going to keep mentioning this. See, God will reward the bondservant's work even if the master doesn't. He's saying, keep going. Be encouraged. God is watching. God's got his eye on you, slave. And also, what is Paul inferring? God has his eye on you. Who? Masters. Their true master, Jesus. And in verse 5, Paul says this. You obey masters as you obey Christ. And so listen to this. Slaves should only do for their masters what could be done for Christ. Oh, wait, so no more crooked deals? Uh-uh. No, no more abusing other, other household bond servants? Nope. Because you're serving who? Christ. See how Paul's like kind of shooting a shot over the bow of even masters to say, oh, hey, bosses, guess what? This is a word for you, really. In the end, rending service with goodwill as to the Lord, verse 7, and not to man. God is watching. Don't care what man thinks. Even your masters care what God thinks first and foremost. The Lord's command supersedes the commands of any master. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You serve me first. And Paul is emphasizing that. The Lord is first, even if that means disobeying a master's unethical command. Now, guaranteed, a master would probably punish a bondservant for disobeying. And Paul's saying, don't worry about it. God's watching. You do the right thing. 
okay? And it's a warning to the masters to say, you better make sure that the things you're telling them to do, that God himself would approve. I'm going to get to that in a minute. The Lord is first. So though Paul does not outright condemn slavery, bond servants in Roman Empire context, neither is he condoning it, though, either. See, Paul lived within the realities of his time 2,000 years ago with the government, the economy, the social structures, and he was radically restructuring them from within. And so what we see is that Paul reminds bond servants that their true master is Jesus, so work for him. Work for Jesus who watches you, who knows your heart. That's your true master. And then he reminds masters that they have the same heavenly master, Jesus, So treat their servants accordingly. See, Paul would have shocked his readers and his hearers because both the bondservant and the master are filled with God's own spirit. He's creating equality within a system that said, no, servants are way, way, way down here. What is Paul doing? Well, in Christ, whoop, they're right there with you in Christ. And they are to submit to one another. Remember chapter 5, verse 21? Hupostasso, one another. Who was Paul talking to? Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and bondservants. The master's being asked to submit to his brother and sister in Christ. Even if the contract remains, Paul says, don't you know? what the reality is when Jesus looks down. So I should have had, I should have had an org chart on my PowerPoint slide because here's what you would have seen. King Jesus at the top, masters here, and then bond servants, whoop, right there, equal in Christ. Unheard of. Paul would have shocked his readers, his hearers, especially the masters. Because both of them are filled with the Spirit. They both serve the same one in charge, King Jesus. And so Paul is radically reordering from within. I want to share a story. It's a man named Chuck Colson. And back in the 90s, he traveled to Moscow to preach at the Moscow Baptist Church. Imagine this. Just blocks away from the Kremlin, he told a packed crowd of Russians who were worshiping that all throughout human history, as far back as recorded time, and doubtless before, that every king, every prince, every tribal chief, every president, and every dictator have sent their subjects into battle to die for them. He's saying this in Russia, okay? Bold. And then he says this, only once in human history has a king not sent his subjects to die for him, but instead he died for his subjects. And this is the king who introduces the kingdom that cannot be shaken because this king reigns eternally. Oh, the gospel being preached in Russia. Oh, may it be so again in 2022. As kings send in their people to die so that the king can get richer. Christians, we serve a king who chose to lay down his life so that you could have the riches of eternity now and into forevermore. And so as I think about Vladimir Putin and he continues to attack Ukraine, and I think about the stock market, which is going nuts, right? Up, down, up, down, 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 down. And I'm just out there this morning. I'm trying to find gasoline under $6 a gallon somewhere, anywhere. Our lives 
are full of uncertainties. Oh, except for one thing. You serve a king who will never change, who will never abandon you, who will never let go. He, he will dispense a grace that he will never take back. You're sealed. It's secure. It's done. Live out of your security in him. What would you not give up for your master, Jesus? And so whatever pain you're going through, Jesus not only cries with you, and he might even heal you from that situation, but he also wants to give you strength to endure. It's a king who comes to serve. It's the only thing certain in our life is King Jesus. Thirdly, I want, to see, I want you to see a vision of Christ in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Paul says this, Masters, do the same to them, your bondservants, and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Paul is saying, I want you to look at the org chart in Christ, masters. I know what the Roman Empire tells you. You are the king of the castle. Well, in Christ, guess what? You just signed up for a whole new reality, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, lifting others up, laying your life down, do the same to them, verse 9 says. So Paul does, he underscores the fact that both slaves and masters have the same master. And thus masters are to do the same for their slaves. That is, they are to give orders to their bondservants as though they were giving orders, remembering they're under Christ. That anything they say, that their boss Jesus will be checking on their work. Does that make sense? Paul's saying, Jesus is watching. <laughs> Jesus is watching. Be very careful how you treat those in your household, how you treat your wives, if you treat your children. If you're a Christian, you should be loving them, lifting them up. And now some people think Paul is even going further and that he means that masters are to treat bondservants as they are giving orders, as if they were ordering Christ around. Wow, that's a pause. How would you treat Jesus? Because Jesus chose to lay aside his crown for a time. Not his glory, not his deity, but he deserved not a cross, but a throne, didn't he? And when he does, he took on a, the scriptures say, a servant's role, a slave's role. He wrapped a towel around himself before he got executed and he washed the feet of the disciples. That was the slave's job. And he says, I'll take that job. A crown and a slave's towel. That's your king. Love him, serve him. So masters, treat your bondservants as if the master servant king Jesus is right there with you and going to check on your work, okay? Imagine giving orders to Jesus. That's how I want you to treat your bondservants. And so the earthly distinction of master and slave remains intact. Paul did not protest the Roman Empire's bondservant system. He didn't. He could have, but he chose not to. What he does is radically within, he's planting seeds that might change things radically inside and eventually outside as well. 
because of this vision of Christ as master and this vision of Christ as servant, treat each other differently. Masters, be like your master, Jesus, who laid down his life in service to you. And as one commentator says, Paul accepts the economic and cultural reality of slavery. He doesn't try to undo it within his lifetime, at least. But it contains, in his words, a fertile seed of abolitionism. It's planting seeds. In fact, Paul's words and other parts of the Bible in particular were so clearly undermining the master-slave institution that plantation owners in the British West Indies would only allow a slave Bible to be on their plantation. And what they would do, they would cut out parts of the Bible that they didn't like. And some of Paul's very words that were too radical telling them that master's and servants are actually equal. In fact, some of Paul's words are even this. He wrote a, a letter to a guy named Philemon who was a master and he had a runaway slave, Onesimus. And Paul says, free him. <laughs> Pretty much says it outright. Because of Christ, wouldn't it be a great idea if you set him free, is what Paul says. Free him. And then Paul says this in Galatians 3.28. Imagine 2,000 years ago within the Roman Empire. It says there's neither slave nor free for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's that PowerPoint slide again. Whoop. You're all one in and under Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells bond servants that if you have a chance to earn their way out of their contract, do it. Be free. It's a, some of Paul's very own words in the Bible are inspired by the vision of Jesus as master and servant. And his words inspired a whole abolitionist movement led by whites like John Newton, whose song we sang Amazing Grace, and like blacks, like Frederick Douglass, who wrote amazing sermons to help bring about the end of slavery ultimately ending in Britain and the United States, the very words of Paul himself were seeds that led to freedom. So I ask you, do you have a vision? Do you have a vision of a servant King Jesus who is calling you to faithfully serve him and serve others in your work, in your family, your neighbors, your community? Would people say about you that you're known for humility, for lifting others up. I want to conclude with this last word. I told you I'd get here, an opportunity to combat, to combat modern-day slavery. Sadly, human trafficking or forced labor is a form of modern-day slavery, and it continues to flourish in our world today. But I want you to know and be convinced that in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, the underlying principles in that section, as well as the broader vision of the Bible, should motivate us to work to end slavery as we know it today. I don't know if you know this, but millions of slaves exist today. More than 40 million people around the world were victims of modern slavery just in 2016. And that's including about 25 million in forced labor and 15 million in forced marriages. Yes, eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 16-year-olds. Forced marriages is a form of slavery. In fact, if you think about this, if all of the slaves today lived in a single city, 
It would be one of the biggest cities in the world. In fact, it's likely just over this past week, think about what you did this past week, over this past seven days, 20,000 children this week were trafficked by slavery. So I want to invite you back because I have a friend coming on June 12th. You know what his expertise is as a follower of Christ? Combating modern-day slavery. My friend Victor Boutros will be here. And his organization last year alone protected 649 victims of slavery, arrested 472 traffickers, enslaving children, men and women. And so even though this problem is enormous, we serve an even bigger God. And so I want to give you this verse as we wrap up. Micah 6.8. God has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. Just because it's in the Old Testament doesn't mean we don't follow it now. In Christ, our master king, the ultimate servant, who laid his life down that you stand under, Paul is saying, don't forget to keep standing under. Whatever I can do with my freedom to help those in bondage, I want to do. And for some of you, that's your words. For some of you, that's your money. For some of you, that's your prayers. For some of you, that's actually going. Whatever that may be, however God is calling you to live faithfully for him. I want to leave you with this illustration. Imagine you're walking on Carmel Beach, our beautiful beach down the road here. I was doing that the other day. And as you walk down Carmel Beach towards Pebble Beach, you know, there's like that cliff. You kind of look up and the beautiful golf course and all these balls keep flying over to the beach for some reason. Don't know why. Or you're walking on the beautiful beach. Imagine you're walking there as you see the cliffs and you see a child on the ground. And the child's bleeding and alone. And so I go over and I bandage the wound and I, I, I call for help. I, I take the girl to the hospital. She's alone. You know what that is? That's called mercy, right? Mercy. I'm just doing what any person should do. I'm doing what the Bible is telling me to do to show mercy to someone in need, someone who's hurting. But then imagine you walking down the beach, and what I see next is actually on the cliff above, what I notice is that there's a man pushing kids off the cliff. That's why the girl got hurt. He's pushing her off, and so there's something called justice. Where you go and you stop that person from doing that ever again. You stop the system that's pushing kids off the cliff. See, there's mercy. You're bandaging the wounds. And then there's justice. You stop the violence from ever having started. And so we hear Micah 6.8 again. God has shown you what to do. To do justice. To love mercy. To walk humbly. With your God. The master, the king, the only king who went out to war to lay his life down so that you wouldn't have to. Why would you want to stuff your soul with anything else? It won't fill. I'm going to invite the worship team back up right now. I'm going to leave you with this vision. Because as we enter in this time of singing, of worship, I want to wrap up with this one story. And back in the day, years ago, it, might be hard for you to imagine, but I was a worship leader for like 20 years. I sang, I wrote songs, I would do conferences, and it was a big part of my life and what I did, and it was a wonderful season. And this one conference, I was leading a conference with a man named Brennan Manning. 
Brendan Manning, was a, God used him amazingly for a, a period of many years to preach the gospel of, of grace. Very unique man. He's no longer living. But I remember I was leading worship for Brennan. Brennan challenged everyone. I'm going to challenge you, encourage you with this vision. He said this. He says, as, as we sing, he encouraged us to raise our hands. He says, I want to give you three visions because, and I'll say this for myself, we're in a Presbyterian church. In a Presbyterian church, we're not known for our exuberance and our worship, a lot of, you know, a lot of movement or a lot of clapping or things like that. And I always joke that when Presbyterians get real excited and they raise their hands, they do this. This is when they're real excited. They're down here. Oh, we're excited. If the spirit is moving, boom, we're here. I, I want to encourage you, as Brennan did, he says, to raise your hands. Not in a legalistic way. Not like, oh, you're going to be closer to Jesus for raising your hands. He just challenged us to think of three things, and this is it. When you raise your hands... Imagine that's one thing you're saying, I worship you, right? Your hands are raised. I worship the king. I'm bowing down to the king, right? That makes sense. When you see someone raise their hands, it could be in honor and respect. We see that in the Bible. You have hands raised. A second vision is also this. I surrender. I give up. I give up. It's your way, not my way. I surrender. And you give a third picture raising your hands. He says, if you went to the Middle East, even today, you see a little kid running around and the little kid, boy or girl, will see their daddy and say, Abba, Abba, and they lift their hands to be picked up by their Abba. So I'm going to invite you at some time in the next few minutes as we sing, we're going to raise our hands and that the Spirit would just prompt you maybe one of those three pictures, that maybe one of those visions are meant for you to see and to embrace and say, yes, yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus, you are my King. I worship you. Yes, Holy Spirit, I surrender to you. Yes, Father, I need the embrace of a good Father who welcomes me home. Would you stand as we pray? I'm going to ask you to raise your hands even now, and you feel free to put them down whenever you feel like. Let's all raise our hands. King Jesus, we recognize your presence. We worship you and honor you. And Father, we know you are a good Father, a good Abba. Some of us feel distanced from you, and so Lord, we raise our hands for some of us saying, Lord, remind us that you would never hesitate to pick us up. And for some of us, Holy Spirit is simply a saying, I surrender, I give up. I've been stuffing my soul with so many other things that do not meet my needs. You made me different. I need you, Jesus, in my life. So we raise our hands and surrender. We raise our hands in worship. And we raise our hands singing and worshiping our Abba Father, a kind and gentle and good King, would not hesitate to pick us up. Oh, thank you, our Lord and Savior. Good Father, Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.